The following recording is from August 7, 2020. The beginning of class, which was not recorded, focused mostly on dividing students into study groups. And because this is modernity, the names for the study groups this year are the X-Men, the Justice League, and the Avengers. Always a lot of fun to bring superheroes into the mix. Uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you are currently enrolled in the class, then hopefully you know who your teammates are and have swapped contact information. Uh, if you have not done that or if you do not have everyone's contact information yet, I recommend you do so at the earliest opportunity because here in about a week, once we finish hammering through all of this uh, theology and philosophy stuff here at the beginning of the school year, we will turn our attention to the timeline proper, starting with the French Revolution, and we will use some in-class time to do group work or to do things as a group. So it's in your best interest to go ahead and get to know your team members because you will want them at your back once we get into the thick of things here with the school year. The podcast that follows here focuses a good bit of the time on Pride and Prejudice, um, including uh, the two mini-series uh, that are most well-known, the 1980 and the 1995 versions. I focus on the miniseries so much because with this being such a visual generation, it just stands to reason that at some point the students were going to watch some kind of film version of the book. So if they're going to do that, they may as well watch one of the two versions that took the time to tell the story well and to tell it completely. Uh, the rest of this, I think, is somewhat explanatory. We only just begin the Enlightenment, um, but stay tuned because we do knock the first two philosophers out of the way. The rest will be handled in class on August 11th. So, without further ado, here's our class from today. Okay, so um, the other day, we talked about, basically it's like this weird counting episode. We have the seven deadly sins, the three core sin motivations, two ways that sin can be expressed, nine personality traits, five slash six love languages, and then we also talked about the ten unchangeables, the ten things about life that most or all people would like to change to some extent, but they just ultimately cannot be changed. Not not in any permanent fashion anyway. But um, I mentioned to you the other day that I had an example with a helper, with a helper personality that I thought really uh, explains this a lot better. Uh, because if you, again, if you consider that there are nine different ways that God generally puts together a person's personality, then you start to understand, you know, coupled with, you know, whatever their preferred uh, active affection is, etc., you start to see why certain virtues and certain vices don't look the same between all people. So let's say that your spiritual gift is hospitality. You are a helper. Like I said the other day, your love language is probably going to be acts of service. So you have someone 
that their driving motivation is they just want to help. They want to be behind the scenes. They want to be working at the soup kitchen. They want to be um, helping uh, uh, homeless people get back on their feet again, whatever. And so their love language, acts of service, they just put themselves 110% into whatever. But then let's say that, and, and this is where we, we cycle back up to the top of the chart. We're looking at the seven deadly sins. And you have, um, let's say, well, let's, let's go with the standard answer. Let's say pride. You know, they are working so hard and then somebody doesn't take them seriously or they don't seem to appreciate all the hard work that the helper is doing. Um, maybe they say something mean. If you've ever worked in food service, then uh, you know that uh, sometimes customers can just be cruel in how they respond to you. Um, and if you haven't experienced this personally, then you probably know somebody who has and has some stories to go with it. So our helper is helping out with a big project of some sort, and then somebody has an unkind word. And so their pride gets injured. And the, the pride of life for that person would be, uh, and we're getting down into core motivations here, in how they respond, they start to get resentful. They start to go, well, what about me? Well, why, you know, I, I don't expect a trophy, but, you know, they should understand where I'm coming from. They should understand what I'm trying to do, you know, and, and that resentment starts to build up. And so what do they do? Well, this is where they start to maybe turn the cold shoulder to some people. That would be maybe more in the area of sin of omission. You know, I know it's right to be friendly and cordial to this person when they come in, but I'm just going to act like they're not there. And so that resentment deepens and those hurt feelings deepen and that uh, pride, sense of pride in the wrong sense, there's there's good pride and, and wrong pride. This is the wrongful pride. You know, that really starts to take root. And then what happens? Usually the helper tries to overcompensate, at least at first, by helping even more or showing, you know, in, in different ways that they really are there trying, they really are trying to help. And so you get into this cycle because then maybe that um, insensitive person comes back into the room or into the, the project, the crew again, and they're still just, they're not being thoughtful in how they're responding. They're not being kind, they're taking things for granted. And so the helper, their hurt deepens, you get pride on top of pride, and then by the time you get down to omission, commission, the, the helper is so wounded in their spirit, then they're, they might even resort to doing uh, the whole routine of, well, fine, see how well you can manage without me. Mic drop, out the door, you, you can just figure out how to do this without me. And they just quit because they're so angry and they're so hurt that they've just begun to shut down. So you see how this is sort of, this is a cycle. When, when I talked the other day about this being a spiral that we can get into, I mean, this is the spiral I'm talking about. But also notice that in talking about this, I started here with the personality uh, trait and 
the love language, figured out what those were, and then figuring out where that sin's going to play out in the person's life. I, I cycle to the top of the chart here, and it starts to make a little more sense. Um, but at the same time, it's the sin stuff that's at the top of the chart, and that's because we always start with biblical truth. I don't start with myself. I mean, if, if I'm looking at this chart and I'm going, okay, I'm probably, I, I think I figured out the other day, I'm, what am I? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm a reformer. I, I think that's mine if I'm going by the whole Enneagram type. I, whenever I take spiritual gift tests, I, I started taking these uh, off and on over the years, starting around age 17. <laughs> I always test it out into two areas, teaching and prophecy. Not prophecy in the sense of, oh, I see the future, and when you're 49 years old, you know, I, it's not that kind of prophecy. It's more in the truth-telling end of things. Just, here's, here's the truth. I'm not apologizing for it. Do you have any questions? Which, considering what I do here at Lighthouse, that's actually, like, that's just spot on for, for what I do now. Um, so, you know, I might personally use this as my beginning point but if I'm going to think through how did a situation go wrong, I'm starting up here. I'm starting with God's word, what God says about me, not what I say about me. Now, this helps me figure out where my strengths and weaknesses are. But this is the fabric of reality that, you know, I can deny it until the cows come home, all of this stuff about sin. But it doesn't change the reality of what's actually happening. Okay. So that was the example that I didn't get to the other day. The other thing, um, a couple other things that I uh, either didn't get to or I sort of botched the other day. I mentioned the other day about a city that had sectioned off a six-block radius and they've declared themselves an autonomous or independent region. That's in Seattle, Washington. I said Portland, Oregon, because I've been reading up on Portland, and so that just sort of cross-pollinated into my brain. Sorry about that. That would be in Seattle, Washington, where that took place. Um, Chaz, yes. I, I was trying to remember, like, I remember Chaz, because traditionally Chaz, C-H-A-S, is um, a traditional nickname or shortened version of the name Charles. Uh, but I couldn't remember. It's the what, what is what does Chaz stand for? Yeah. Oh, that's okay, with a Z on the. Capital Hill Autonomous Zone. So it's C H A Z. And then they changed it to Chop. Chop. Capital Hill. I'm trying to remember. Do you remember what the OP is for? I, I, I didn't even realize they had changed but, their name. But Portland, also after Seattle, also had a zone that they briefly okay. sort of disbanded. They okay, so Portland also had a, but it was temporary, so it, it disbanded? It, in, a, in a fashion. Okay. Place where people <laughs> and live. Oh, like that's like the typical modernity answer ish. <laughs> <laughs> they, they demand they disbanded living there, but they're still gathering every night and huh. trying to, in any way they can, destroy the federal courthouse. Oh uh, yeah, those those federal courthouses, those are <laughs> definitely in the middle of the bullseye targets right now. 
Ooh, yeah. So I wasn't completely off by saying Portland, Oregon. Um, just mostly off. <laughs> okay. The other thing, the other niggling detail from the other day that I'm not sure that I made uh, it clear, uh, your uh, flow chart, your sin flow chart, and also your 10 unchangeables, those are two of the sheets that should go in the page protectors at the very front of your notebook. Uh, because those are pages that you will want to refer to while we're working on ISM journals, when you're doing film analysis, when you're doing other things throughout the year. So rather than a bunch of flipping back and forth in you know, which section of the notebook and it getting dog-eared and ratty, and of course those little holes, they always end up ripping at some point. This way, it's in the page protector, and it's right there at the front where you can go to it wherever you need. So, um, so if you want to do that now, that's great. If you want to do that later, just don't forget, because when we get around to notebook checks, and I will give this to you in uh, the checklist uh, whenever it's time, but I will list on there, you know, items at the front of your notebook in page protectors, and I will have them listed. And these are just the first two. There are some others that will go there in the front as part of your quick go-to resources. Okay, so any questions about my helper example or notebook organization, Chaz? <laughs> Ms. Earl could probably answer more questions about Chaz right now than I can. I just, it, it's... 2020 has become a weird game of whack-a-mole. It's like I start to focus on one thing and then like eight more pop up over here. It's just really weird. Yes, Fred. Um, do you know the circumstances surrounding the disbandment of Chaz? Because what I heard was the police kind of took an order given from the mayor and interpreted it their own way. And were like, you said shut them all down. We're going to shut them all down. Because, like, the mayor of Seattle, yeah. the story I've heard is the mayor of Seattle, there were protesters outside of her house who said, shut them all down. They went, okay, we'll shut them all down. Oh. Went out and took down all of the protesters. <laughs> and we're like, we're tired of this. But yeah. you know how everything gets spun. Right. Well, and, and we also. Even the mayor that was yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah well, that's right. The mayor supported Chaz. The thing was, she was fine with him until they started protesting outside of her house. <laughs> and they were like, she tells the police, shut them all down. They went, okay, we'll shut them all down. I, I have a, a, a timely uh, meme tacked to the tail end of today's PowerPoint that I will show you. But, uh, but that's been, that is the catch 22, or one of several, uh, regarding the whole defunding the police is that it ideally seen from a certain light, it seems very reasonable, principled, like this is for the good of those who have been injured and wounded. But once you start removing the police force, there is always that segment of the population that they are going to go crazy. And they're going to start looting televisions from Target and they're going to you know, start breaking into people's houses and just doing whatever pops into their head. Because unless there is the threat of a police officer to arrest them, they're just going to do whatever they want. Yes, Leo. Also, shouldn't the police be more funded for better training for de-escalation stuff? You know, and see, we get into things like that. So in case I didn't pick up on the microphone, shouldn't the police have more funding if they're going to be trained for de-escalation? 
Yes. So it, it gets into a whole other layer of, well, if then this cause and effect, uh, basically the last three months in America has been one long running example of how we just don't think things through anymore. We just don't on any level. We don't connect dots. We don't do it as a culture. We don't do it as a government. We don't do it as individuals. Um, and it is it is starting to cost us in some big ways. Cameron. That that's going to give private security firms a way to monopolize on what they're doing and capitalism controls back into effect. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you shut down the police, you get private security firms, they monopolize, capitalism starts to kick back in. Yes. See, this is the kind of response that I would expect from a lighthouse student because, like I said the other day, we teach you to integrate all of your subjects. We teach you to integrate your thinking so that you know that, you know, Latin and history and algebra two don't operate in isolation. <laughs> because if you can figure out where all those dots connect, then you're watching the news and go, yeah, but wait, but if you do this, you'll end up either in a worse mess than you started with, or you'll just cycle right back around to the beginning of the scenario. <laughs> so, Flying cows, if you're a returning student, then you know that flying cows are gold in this class. So the short version of this story is that I spent two summers in France as part of an exchange program. It was actually an exchange program that our uh, teacher, Miss Miller, here was involved in. Um, I was working with a different French teacher, um, but uh, both of our schools were part of the same uh, uh, exchange program. And when I was there, I got to visit a cathedral in the small town of San Diego, and they had four statues in front of this cathedral. And there was an angel. There was what looked to me like a griffin, like a, a, a winged lion. Um, and then there was an eagle. And then there was a flying cow. And it was a cow standing up on its hind legs with wings. And I kept asking people the whole time I was there in France. And even when I got home, I tried to do some Google searching. And I was like, why a flying cow? Why is there a cow with wings in front of this church? I don't get it. And so finally, it took me a while to chase down uh, the reason. But it has to do with the book of Kells and with the illuminations that they did in the medieval manuscripts. And um, basically, what, and you see here, this is taken from the book of Kells, each of these resemble one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are also supposed to represent the four key uh, stages or parts of Jesus's life. So the angel is the annunciation, Christ's birth. Um, the, uh, let's see, the lion, the winged lion um, is his ministry. Okay, talking about his growth and uh, God and man and in his stature. And then the cow represents his sacrifice, his death and resurrection. And then the eagle is the ascension, um, his uh, being ascended into heaven. And so the flying cow is, Matthew Luke represents the gospel of Luke. This is sort of like some doors. I have to count on my fingers. Um, Luke, uh, but it also 
uh, represents that sacrifice that Christ made for us. And so when somebody about a year after, okay, come on, I need you to change pages. Oh, thank you. Nope, nope. We're not going to Pride and Prejudice yet. Okay, so when about a year later, when somebody gave me a box of stamps uh, with uh, designs from the Book of Kells, I immediately zoned in on the flying cow. So that is my special stamp for papers. If you just really nailed it and you get a flying cow, then even if it's not a 100, because that is possible in my class, to get to earn a flying cow, even if it's not a 100% paper, it, it's gold. That that's the you know you you know put it in a frame or something. I don't know. Maybe maybe don't frame your papers. That would be kind of weird. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> this is my way of encouraging people. <laughs> Some of you have flying cows in the front covers of your timeline books. Um, because the last time I graded timeline books back last spring, my arm was still in a sling, so I couldn't write my usual stuff. I was doing everything left-handed, so I was just like, cow, cow, cow. <laughs> so, but this is Luke the Flying Cow. So, now you know. All right, so let's talk about Pride and Prejudice. Um, I did not get a chance to really uh, branch into this with you the other day, so I want to take the time to do some of that now. Um, you have the reading guide. I didn't get a chance to walk you through that one. Um, hopefully it makes sense. Um, I took the pages in the book and I just rounded off to the nearest even number and I divided those pages by five if you're going to read only five days a week. And I divided by seven to get a number in case you're reading seven days a week. I recommend the seven day a week method because that way you read fewer pages in more manageable chunks. Um, and then if you do have like a spend the night party or you go to see grandma and there's a day or two where you just don't get to read, then you just fall back on the five day a week method and it's easier to catch up. Um, this novel was originally written as a three volume novel. So a trilogy uh, is what we would typically call it today. Um, but the individual books, volume one, volume two, volume three, were typically very small. And this is because at the time, even though we've got Gutenberg's printing press, you know, books are being published, more people are being published, it was still expensive to get books. Um, it's really not until after World War II that the price of books come down enough where it becomes more affordable for the common man to start stocking his own library at home. Um, but of course, nowadays, all three volumes of Pride and Prejudice are published in you know, one volume. Um, but the structure of this book is so perfect. The way she's got all of the events timed out, it really, if you're thinking in terms of a television series, each season, is, uh, sorry, each volume would be like a season of television shows on TV and where it ends would be like the big cliffhanger where you go, no, not Frankie. I need to know what happened to Frankie. And you've got to wait all summer or nowadays, sometimes as late as November before season two starts back and you get to find out what happened to Frankie. Um, so it, it's really very well 
thought out. Uh, Jane Austen and Charles Dickens in particular. Charles Dickens was the master of this. Um, the two of them, but especially Dickens, are credited with creating the kind of storytelling arcs that we are so familiar with now in television um, and, and with television series. Um, but of course, uh, Jane Austen had no way of anticipating any of that in the late 1700s, early 1800s, which is when she wrote the book. Um, one of the things that's so remarkable about this book, and I did put this on your reading guide, is that she wrote Pride and Prejudice during the mid-1790s when the French Revolution was still unraveling life in Europe. Because even though it was in France, it's almost like twanging a spider web or snipping one line of a spider web. It might wreck things over here, but the rest of the web is doing like this. And all the little cocoons or spiders or whoever else is caught up in the web, they're doing, you know, spinning circles around their little lines because something got ripped away over here. That's the way the situation was in Europe in the late 1700s. They were reeling from a very peculiar double whammy. On the one hand, we had the American Revolution where the Americans won out their independence in their war against England. Um, and that sent one sort of shockwaves through Europe because now they've got to figure out how to do business with this country that has this seemingly limitless uh, resource of timber and fur and spices and sugarcane and coffee. Coffee at this point starts to become a hot commodity. And how do we do business with them when they used to be British, but they're not now? And they don't really have a Navy yet, but they're fiercely independent. Like what, what do we do here? So that was, you know, scrambling things to a point. And then France at the beginning looks like it's going down the same road to a, a wonderful sort of reformation. And it ends in a bloodbath. And this leads to the rise of Napoleon. And if you know anything about history in the early 1800s, Napoleon to that generation, he was their Hitler. And it's not really fair to compare Napoleon with Hitler. It's like comparing, you know, a, a mad bull with a wolverine. Like they're, they can both do some damage, but one of them you can predict a lot more and a bull might gorge you, but they're not going to eviscerate you, probably. Um, but for the people of the time in the early 1800s, like there were a lot of people who had thought that the end of time had come, that Napoleon was the Antichrist, that the end of all things was near, um, and that the, uh, some would have argued during that time that the tribulation had started. I mean, because the way the French Revolution and Napoleon just started to reconfigure things in Europe, it absolutely put everyone on their ear. So if you read literature from that time period, it's either all about the state of affairs in Europe, France especially, or they're just very unsettling novels. This is where we get Frankenstein and we get um, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. Uh, these books that are known for being very dark and atmospheric and unsettling and we're not sure who to trust 
And it's just, you can sense the upheaval in each of those novels. And then you get to Pride and Prejudice with its famous classic opening statement about any man, a single man possessing a large fortune must be in want of a wife. And it tells you right there that one of the key themes throughout this story is going to be about matrimony. Somebody wants to get married. In fact, if you look at the book, it's several somebodies who want to get married, some for more honorable reasons than others. But it seems almost flippant, almost shallow compared to what everybody else was writing about or what was going on in the world that day. Uh, but if you think about it, Jane Austen does a very brilliant commentary on her time period, not by dealing with Napoleon head on, but by dealing with the village life and, and how relationships work and how they're mended, how they're broken. And even though the book is technically about, you know, person A, B, C, D, E, you know, are they going to get married or not? Why is this such a big deal? It's not a romance in the, in the way that we tend to think of as a romance. Um, this is more about trust, loyalty, or as the title says, pride, wrongful pride and prejudice the natural bias that we have against other people for whatever reasons. And it's interesting because the Napoleonic Wars never surface anywhere in this book, except in the fact that you have the militia quartering at Meryton. So there's this whole subplot about these soldiers who are encamped in a town nearby and they are training, they are drilling, and there's only one point where Elizabeth Bennett, the uh, main character, asks um, one of the, the generals, you know, are, are you here to uh, quell the discontented populace? Or are you here to uh, defend us against the French? Like, that's it. That's the only mention. So why read this book when it doesn't have anything directly to do with Napoleon and the French Revolution, it's because this was her answer to that unrest, was to say, okay, back to the basics. What matters? What's important? Where do we go wrong? When we do go wrong, how do we fix it? And there are several different layers of themes that work all the way through this story. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about this book is how many people, and I was definitely one of these, had some pretty preconceived notions going into this book. Um, if you're sitting here listening to me and you can already tell me the name of all five Bennett sisters and you know about Mr. Collins and Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and you can't think about either of those characters without cracking a smile, you've probably um, have read the book, or if not, you're probably very well acquainted with one or more of the movie versions. Those are typically my girls who like these. The guys usually come into this like, oh no, we're gonna read this marriage book. Let's golf. Why do you hate us? Okay, let me just go ahead and put this out here. Last time around when I taught modernity, I taught this book, and then we went through Dracula, Tale of Two Cities, Great Gatsby, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, several others. I got to the end of the school year and as like one of those freebie questions on my final exam, I'm always asking students stuff like this. 
in the final exam is, is free points. And it also gives me a chance to see, well, how did you filter your school year when it came to the reading or, or whatever? I asked them, what was their surprise favorite book that they had to read throughout the entire school year? All of my boys, except one, who was just sort of contrary all by himself, but you know, he's, he's special. But all of my boys, except for one, named Pride and Prejudice as their favorite book that year. All of my girls named Dracula, which is the complete opposite of what you would expect. But when it came down to it, because I, I asked like which book and why, and I looked at the why, all of the boys mentioned that you know, a couple of the male characters in the story, but especially Mr. Darcy, they're like, this is the guy I want for a best friend. This guy is amazing. Like, I thought this was a boring, stupid book until I started to understand Darcy. And then I realized what a man of character and principle he was. And we need more guys like this in the world now. And then my girls had a similar vein going on with Dracula, which is a very boy heavy book. And, you know, and it's, it's vampires and, you know, spooky castles and people getting locked in rooms and not knowing how to escape and all sorts of creepy conspiracies going on. But there's Mina Harker and Mina Harker is the one, there's really two females in this book, but one of them, you know, not, not to spoil, but she sort of fades out early in the book. Uh, but Mina Harker is the one key female in this book. And she's navigating this man's world without losing her feminine femininity or being a swooning idiot, which if you look at movies and books and television of the last 200 years, you know, increasingly over time, it's either you're, you know, uh, oh my love, I'm waiting for my Prince Charming to come save me. Or it's you're you're, you're Hanoi Jane and you're you're doing Jane Fonda and you're you know just anyway. Jane Fonda's another whole other discussion. Sorry, she was maybe not the best choice there. But I even think of like Scarlett O'Hara by the time because Gone with the Wind was written in the 1930s. Like she's a tart. Like she has her morals are so wackadoodle. Like she is not the kind of girl I want for a best friend. I mean, and I just, you know, and then it just gets stranger from there. So now the kind of stories that are put out now, um, the, the, the fourth wave feminism is being so drummed into girls' heads that it's taking the fabric of like who we are supposed to be as females in the world and just completely distorting it. Um, but then you look at Dracula and you get Minna Harker and she just, she walks that line between the two worlds perfectly. She's got enough of a backbone to stand up and tell the boys when they're acting like idiots. But she also knows that, oh, it's time for war. This is where I step back. I'm not on the front lines. I'm not going to be the one wielding crucifixes and daggers, but I'm going to be over here helping in this way. I'm still on the front lines, but I'm not in armor. I, I'm, I'm not charging down the cannons. And, and so there's this, this very delicate line to walk between that. And so anyway, I will be interested to see what y'all think about those two books. I would say for those of you who are, you know, coming 
to this book with fear and loathing, um, that you at least give it a chance and also be encouraged that this is not the kind of shallow, frou-frou story that you might expect if you're just looking at, say, the photographs um, or the opening scene from any of the films. Um, because once you get into the book, you realize uh, very quickly that with the exception of being told that someone is handsome or beautiful, we don't really have any descriptions of any of the characters. We're never told if the Bennett sisters, if they're all blonde, brunettes, redheads. Uh, we don't know the color of the living room furniture. We know that the mantelpiece in Lady Catherine de Bourgh's sitting room cost 800 pounds, but that's because Mr. Collins is a pompous fool and he is focusing on all the wrong things. And so that's why when he shows up and he's all about, oh, well, this cost this and all the windows face east. And, and he does start to focus on the trappings of things. Like that's one of the things that adds to him being just an idiot, just a very shallow man that, you know, just complicates things wherever he goes. Um, there's virtually none of that sort of frou-frou, you know, trappings anywhere in this book. It focuses on the people. It focuses on the conversations. It focuses on the relationships. Um, okay, on this screen here, I've got a couple photos here um, from the two miniseries. Now, I know that there are a ton of movie versions out there, and... I would recommend that if your only exposure to Pride and Prejudice movie-wise has been with one of the short, like, made-for-theater versions, that you need to branch out and watch one or both of these because the miniseries, both of these follow the book very well. Not perfectly. Like, neither of these include the scene where Lydia dresses one of the officers in drag and tries to pass him off as a potential girlfriend to one of the other officers. Like, there are a couple things that don't make it into either of these. There are several things in the book that even if you are just huge fans of one of both of these, and it's like, oh, yeah, I've read the book. And there are probably a lot of details you've forgotten about this book. Um, I always am amazed at how much I've forgotten whenever I go back through the book myself. Um, but the two miniseries that are uh, closest to the book, you have the 1980 miniseries there up top, and then a still from the 1995 miniseries. This is my favorite. This is the one that I discovered first. This is Miss Earl's favorite. This is the one she discovered first. And we have over time taken the time to watch each other's favorite miniseries and then realized that both of them are excellent in their own right. Um, and, and I I know it's, you know, it's a little weird for me to be talking about this instead of the book itself here for the next few minutes. But I want to do that because I know y'all, y'all are going to watch one of the movie versions anyway, just to help you visualize stuff, especially if Jane Austen ain't your thing. Um, so let me point out a couple things, because even if you are a Pride and Prejudice fan, and you've seen one of these, you probably haven't seen the other. And there are a couple of things that I want to point out that actually has some bleed through into the book. So, um, and, and of course, you know, just as an obvious starting point, a two hour movie, two and a half, even a three hour movie is not going to do justice to this book. They're going to leave out 
whole sections. My mom uh, has watched several of these versions here lately, and she said the and she watched the um, two hour version with Kira Knightley, and she said it was so confusing. I me either. I'm 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 trying to behave myself and not just go all you know uh, on that version, but I just. Mm -hmm. No, it's cinema cinematically it's beautiful cinematically it's breathtaking it's stunning plot wise it is swiss cheese so mm. but um a couple things to know uh about as, as far as like watching these because most of you how many of you have seen this version the the 95 version okay a couple of y'all have okay not as many as i was expecting Last time around, it was like most of class. Okay, so um, if you've seen this version, um, this one is it's made closer to the year 2000. So the camera angles, the lighting, the color, the sound um, is a lot more crisp. Um, it's a lot more what you're accustomed to with uh, watching a movie. Um, the 1980 version um, feels at sometimes like it's a recorded stage play. And I think at least in the opening scenes, some of it was done on a soundstage and most of the actors, their entire career was on the stage or almost all of it. The woman who did Elizabeth Bennett, uh, she did this movie and one other and she didn't make another movie for like 30 years. Um, she's done it all on stage. They are stage actors and you can tell because in the first episode, they're all a little stiff because it's like they're trying to figure out how to do this thing with cameras watching. But as the thing goes on, like they just gel beautifully and it's uh, really well done. Um, both movies make very good use of the letters in this book. Okay, so fun thing about Pride and Prejudice and Dracula is that both of these books are epistolary books, especially Dracula. Epistolary meaning that this is a story told with letters. A lot of Pride and Prejudice is not told in letters, but there are several letters throughout. Don't skip the letters. If you skip the letters, you will be confused. You will not know what's going on, okay? And both of these movies make very good use of the letters and uh, and and just very well done but they also pull out different letters so you know again if you're an avid pride and prejudice person and um and you want that really good contrast i would recommend watching both of these at some point um here we go uh, da, 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 da. and one of the things too that i love about watching both of these is that you get an interesting contrast between the characters and different interpretations of the characters. So like in this version, Elizabeth Bennett is very witty and charming. Um, and, and you can tell that she's um, uh, a little sassy and she's her daddy's favorite. This Elizabeth Bennett, you can tell why she's so much like her daddy and that some of the failings of her daddy have definitely been passed on to the daughter. It, it's a little more obvious, but also masterfully done here. Whereas here, she's like daddy's pet. Here, you watch her start to make the same mistakes that her dad did, and you're like, oh no, 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 you just don't, you, you don't wanna go there. Um, so, but very, very well handled. Um, there are several of these contrasts 
The casting where it is significantly different really highlights aspects of the story that the other one doesn't cover um, much or if at all. And sometimes the inter different interpretations on characters raise different questions about the book. So you have uh, like um, in this version of Pride and Prejudice, uh, you know, Lady Catherine de Bourgh has a daughter who's supposed to be married to Darcy. She's been promised. In this version, um, Miss de Bourgh is the sickly invalid that she is described as in the book. In this version, the Miss de Bourgh, she is almost like a hostage situation. She's like, she doesn't look sickly, but then you start to realize just how controlling. Lady Catherine de Bourgh can be. Okay, so uh, the last uh, couple of little bits here about Pride and Prejudice. Um, potential pop quiz for Tuesday. I do not anticipate doing like I did with Little Women last year where I gave a formal test on the book at the beginning of each week just to make sure everybody was reading. Um, but I do want to go ahead and do one of these little pop quizzes, um, especially since I only have had one or two of you actually watch the miniseries. That means that it, unless you've read the book yourself, everybody here probably has a Swiss cheese version of Pride and Prejudice in their head. So there's a lot to learn here. So I want to make sure at the very least that everyone is off to a, a good beginning. I'm not going to get super picky about like um, asking questions from the footnotes or anything. But I am going to ask general questions to make sure that you are reading and that you're understanding what you're reading. Um, and uh, that, that takes me to um, a couple of uh, points here about the footnotes in the book. Uh, very quickly, because I do want to make some inroads with the Enlightenment today, um, get out your Pride and Prejudice uh, books. Um, and especially if you have, I know I've got a couple of people who have ordered their annotated Pride and Prejudice books and they haven't come in yet. I think I've got like three of you that are all in the same boat there and that's fine. Um, okay. That's right. Some of you have the Kindle. Yeah. If you have the Kindle version, that's fine. I know that the annotated version is available on Kindle. Although it, it might be a little wonky to use where you have to like click on the little hyperlinked numbers that are in the text and it takes you to the footnote and then you have to go back. Whereas if you have the hard copy, um, you have the text on one side and the footnotes on the other. Either way is fine. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to uh, stand here and pass judgment on how people, whether you choose digital or paper or your reasons for doing that. Um, but just just know that I would really like, if at all possible, for everybody to have an annotated version because there are certain parts of this book that just make so much more sense, even for someone like me. I've read a bunch of old books. I've read Pride and Prejudice several times. But sitting down to it with the annotated version in my lap made a world of difference because there are these nuances about British life in the late 1790s, early 1800s, that would just go over my head unless somebody explained it to me. So if you are uh, just uh, real quick, just open to chapter one. This would be like pages two and three in your annotated book if you have um, the annotated. And 
couple of things to point out here. If you look at that first page of text, we've got that the classic is one of the most famous opening lines of literature. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And then you have the one there that directs you to footnote number one. And it talks about that famous opening line, but it also talks about how it sets the stage for the themes of the book. So especially for those of you who have Miss Miller for your grammar comp class, and you know that she's going to be drawing from this book for certain writing assignments, she's going to be focusing on different themes in the story. This is where the footnotes will really help you out because some of the footnotes are just a few lines. Some of them run on for the better part of a page, but if you are looking at how those themes are being developed throughout the book, like you've got ready-made crib notes right here that you can turn to. Now, uh, the footnotes in this book really fall into about six categories. They're either going to tell you about vocabulary, they're going to clarify phrasing. So if you look at um, like uh, number two in the footnotes there on page three, his lady is another way of saying his wife. Okay. Now that's pretty basic. You might be familiar with that sort of phrasing already, but if you go to page five, the footnotes on page five, um, by then Sir William and Lady Lucas have already been mentioned and they add this bit of clarification. Um, Sir William has, as shortly will be revealed, was knighted. This means that he has now called Sir William Lucas or just Sir William and his wife is Lady Lucas. So by being knighted, it not only elevates his position in society, but it also elevates his wife's position in society. And as we'll figure out real quick, this becomes a point of resentment, one of many points of resentment between Mrs. Bennett, the mom, and Lady Lucas, who is the mother of another young lady who is looking to get married. So there's competition on the playing field. Um, so vocabulary, phrasing, every once in a while there will be a diagram in here. You'd actually have to flip through the book to find some of those. But when it talks about a chase and four or the barouche box, like these are different kinds of carriages. Um, so when, um, you know, it talks about, you know, Bingley came down in a chase and four to see the place. This would be almost like saying, well, he showed up in a Jaguar. You know, he showed up in a BMW going, oh, well, he's got he's got money and he can travel fast. Uh, so but uh, sometimes in the book, they will give you diagrams so that you can see what this looks like. And it, it makes a big deal at certain points with some of these carriages. Um, you're everybody's facing forward the same way. But the more elegant and the more expensive the carriage, the more likely that you would have seats facing each other so that you can comfortably talk to the other people in the carriage while you're traveling because you're in those things for hours, even if you're well off and have lots of money. Like they explain those sorts of things and, and they give you some diagrams of that. Conventions of the time. Um, if you go to, um, let's see. Uh, Okay, go again on page five, footnote number 11. Um, this is, again, at the beginning where uh, Mr. Bingley has come into the neighborhood and Mrs. Bennett is nagging her husband to pieces about go and call on Mr. Bingley 
You know, we can't be acquainted with him unless you go and call on him. That fo This footnote, number 11, explains why. It talks about the very specific methods of introducing people because if you did not follow protocol, if Mr. Bingley did not call on this, I'm uh, sorry, if Mr. Bennett, as somebody already established in the community, went and called on Mr. Bingley and Mr. Bingley returned the call to Mr. Bennett's house, if that exchange did not happen first, then the only other way that the Bennett girls might be introduced to this new eligible young bachelor in the neighborhood would be for them to go to a ball or an assembly and to be formally introduced by someone who had already met him. It was very much against uh, the standards of the time for young ladies to just go up and introduce themselves to strange men. You did not do that. That was one symptom uh, in, in the day and age, at least, of being loose. It, it meant that you were desperate, that you were a man chaser, you were a floozy, and no respecting gentleman would spend his time on you. You did not go and introduce yourself. You did not connive to be introduced. Um, but you had to be introduced properly. So that is what is meant by conventions of the time. So a lot of these, they explained those sorts of details to you so you can better understand why Mrs. Bennett is nagging her husband to death about going and calling on Mr. Bingley. Um, uh, two other kinds of footnotes here. There's historical context. So there's... Um, like one in here somewhere that explains about the militia being quartered at Meryton. And those footnotes would say a little bit more about the Napoleonic Wars and what was going on at the time because it never actually crosses into the book. And then the rest of them are under the uh, heading of themes and symbolism. So like the very first footnote is um, uh, about that. Or um, if you go to page seven, and footnote number 14, um, this is right after Mr. Bennett has just gotten really snarky with his wife. She has nagged and she is harassed. And Mr. Bennett has a very dry wit and he can hold his own. And, and of course, the, the ironic thing is usually when he gets in these zingers at his wife's expense, it goes right over his wife's head. Like she just doesn't, just doesn't catch it most of the time. Every once in a while she will and she'll get really offended. But most of the time she doesn't even understand him well enough to be offended at what he says. Um, the, the opening version of the opening scene from the 1995 version just nails that dynamic beautifully. Um, but footnote 14 here um, talks about Mr. Bennett's indifference um, in some things and being um, a, concerned about others or be becoming concerned too late and about his character and how this sets the stage for some of the complications later in the story. Um, so uh, yes, Mrs. Bennett is uh, a nag. She's uh, very high strung, but Mr. Bennett tends to be very um, lackadaisical when it comes to things about his daughters. So like one of them, he lets her go off for the summer with um, an officer and his wife to Brighton where the militia is moving so that she can follow the officers essentially. And his reasoning is, hey, we will never be done with this until she is allowed to make herself, uh, make a fool of herself in a public place. So let's just go ahead and get it out of the way. Like that's his reasoning for letting her go. 
Okay. That sort of indifference is, you know, it seems like such a background thing until you get later in the story. And then you're like, oh, the Bennett family just walked into this and it's not all Mrs. Bennett's fault. Okay. Um, so please make use of those footnotes. I'm not saying that you have to read all of them. Um, you know, but there will be times where you'll run across something and go, ooh, and then you can go and look or maybe do a little bit of skim reading just to help deepen your understanding. Okay. I think that's it for that. So let's switch over again to this. Now, what I'm going to do today is in the interest of time, I'm going to skip my day in history uh, from the Christian Almanac, and I'm going to focus on this particular historical slide. So one of the things that I also like to do in this class as I start PowerPoints is that I usually have some slide with some kind of photograph, historical fact on the screen that we can look at to sort of get ourselves in the right sort of brain space here. Um, Mary Fields has been my beginning point for my first PowerPoint in modernity and in American experience for years. Um, long before uh, the events of 2020, 2020 gave us a much more heightened awareness to the, uh, the, the plight of racial, uh, racial tensions in America, uh, she has always been my beginning point for a couple of interesting reasons. Um, now, unfortunately with her, and uh, just, sorry, pause, quick question. Um, is anybody getting a glare off of the screen because of the ceiling fans? Okay. All right. Y'all don't? Okay. Maybe it's because I'm so close. Okay. And just, just you. It's, it's probably a too far, too close kind of thing. Okay. If ever at any point there's so much glare on the screen that you can't really tell what's going on there, let us know and we'll hit the lights. Okay. Um, unfortunately, uh, as far as Mary Fields is concerned, we don't know much more about her than what's on the screen here. She was born enslaved in Tennessee somewhere during 1832. You, you know the drill. If you were a slave back in the day, they didn't really keep track of your birthdays. Um, we just know generally when she was born. Died in 1914, but she was born enslaved in Tennessee. After the Civil War, she becomes a pioneer moving out to Cascade, Montana. Then in 1895, when she was around 60 years old, she becomes the second woman and first African-American carrier for the U.S. Postal Service. Now, uh, there is a really good podcast out there called Stuff You Missed in a History Class, and they uh, tried to do a full podcast episode on her. There wasn't a whole lot of information, but she is included in, uh, sometimes they'll do like uh, six lost episodes or six, you know, They'll hit like four or five things or six things that people are interested in, but there's not enough to make a podcast in and of themselves on that person. She's in the lineup. So if you search Stuff You Missed in History Class and this woman's name, you can find a little more about her. Um, but I still put her here <clears throat> at the beginning of this first PowerPoint because she's a really good reminder about a couple things when we come to history. See, in my years of public school teaching, I got to know some really amazing people, uh, amazing teachers and students, got to know them very well. And um, I left public school teaching 
in 2008, uh, the 2007-2008 year, uh, school year. Um, since then, I will sometimes encounter some of these teachers that I worked with back in the day. And I have had them ask about, oh, Lighthouse, where is that? And you know the drill. You start explaining about Lighthouse, most people's eyes sort of glaze over because they don't get the whole homeschool hybrid, you know, university model, two days a week, what, you know. And, and so usually the question only goes so far, and then they go, oh, that's nice, and then <laughs> that's it. But I have had about three or four people over the years who have hung in there with me because they're really trying to understand Lighthouse and how we do things. And then they figure out, oh, you teach history. Great. Do you have or do you observe Black History Month? Do you observe Women's History Month? And I always have to navigate those questions very carefully because the answers are, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Because here at Lighthouse, we absolutely believe in giving credit where credit is due, regardless of whether they are male or female, you know, what color their skin was. Um, you know, Miss Earl does uh, a large section in Christendom where she talks about medical advancements and she gives credit to several Muslim physicians from the Middle Ages because they were the ones who created or invented certain techniques that furthered the study of actual reliable medicine. So yes, we give credit where credit is due. But if you're looking for, you know, every January or every February or every March, we focus only on the history from this slice of the pie, Lighthouse doesn't do that. And part of it is just logistics. We are not a five day a week school. Um, but also as part of how we do things at Lighthouse, we believe in braiding people into the timeline where they belong because, um, at, and I saw this all the time, having grown up in public school and then teaching public school for so long, when you take all of these wonderful African-American personalities from history and put them into a, a concentrated two or three week study, you're studying a lot of people out of context. So you're, you're studying um, Harriet Tubman uh, alongside, uh, you know, Judge Clarence Thomas, alongside Rosa Parks, and they're all wonderful people, but their story means so much more if you had the full context around that. Um, and then there's also the fact, and Miss Mary is a perfect example of this, how one person usually fits into multiple categories if you're thinking about studying slices of history. So for instance, she's born in 1832, the Civil War breaks out in 1861, and then she starts working for the post office around 1895. This splits her life roughly into exact thirds. So the first third of her life, she's a slave. The second third of her life, She's a pioneer going west, settling in a new frontier. And then the last 30 years of her life, she's a federal government employee. So where do we put her story? Do we talk about her only when we get to the topic of slavery? Do we talk to her, uh, talk about her only when we talk about westward expansion? Or only when, I, you know, she fits with all of it. So rather than only focusing on one part of her life to the exclusion of everything else, we want to talk about the full Mary Fields, who she was, the fact that she uh, was befriended 
by a convent of nuns. And she apparently, from what little I know about the woman, um, she had a rather prickly temperament. Of course, being a slave until you're in your 30s and then moving west and then everything else, like she probably had a lot of bad experiences. So yeah, I would be a little prickly too, but she loved the nuns and the nuns loved her. And they had a really great working relationship where you know they took care of her and she protected them. She was, as the photo indicates, or hints at she was a real crack with a shotgun. Um, and a, another really great thing about her though is by the time she got into her final years when she could no longer uh, deliver the mail, her house burned to the ground. There was a house fire and the entire community, white and black, came together to build a new house for her so that she could live comfortably for her remaining years. And she actually ended up living about five more years after that. So it's a really remarkable story. So to only focus on one piece of that is, it's not gonna give you the full picture, okay? So this is why, hmm, okay, uh, there we go. This is why um, here at the beginning of the school year, even though I want more interactive stuff going on here in class, I'm taking the time here at the, the beginning to lay groundwork as much as possible so that as we move through the timeline, I don't have to bog down for little sidebars that might not make sense in isolation. I, I want this to be running in the background so you can have your worldview filters in place and we can talk about why people do things the way they do and why sometimes very good intentions. And I, I do believe that some of the people behind the defend the police movement have very honorable intentions. They see real grievances that need to be addressed. But and my veterans know what's coming next. The right thing done in the wrong way. Leads to ultimately leads to disaster yes that's the mantra that goes through all four humanities classes it will be carved on the back of your skull by the time you graduate you will hear miss earl and i say this all the time you can have very noble intentions but if you do not take the full counsel of scripture into your your mathematical equation then your math is going to be wrong at some level and you might accomplish part of what you wanted um, or it might look like that you accomplished what you set out to do, but it's going to backfire in unexpected ways. So this brings us to the Enlightenment. Nothing new under the sun. The Enlightenment, and this is the beginning of your note-taking sheet, the Enlightenment was not a leap forward, but a fall backward into old ways. So next school year, when we cycle back around to antiquity, one of the things that Ms. Earl will continually point out to you is that these really, really old, dead philosophical dudes, <laughs> um, you know, it, they should all sound very familiar because the Enlightenment resurrected a lot of that pagan thinking from antiquity and reinterpreted it, reinvented it for a new generation. So this was not a leap forward, it was a fall backward. And this enlightenment, and, and I'm gonna walk you through all these philosophers, um, you know, all, all their different ideas, and, and we'll break this down, but this enlightenment brings about three characteristics that mark modernity. 
rebellion, fragmentation, and purposelessness. In rebellion, we're rejecting any authority that is not the self, me, myself, what I want, the pride of life. If you remember your sin flow chart, that's the second row. I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and don't you dare tell me no. Fragmentation, we are scattered and severed from each other. Now, that point seemed so pertinent four years ago when I taught your older siblings. It is even more to the point now that we are here in the middle of 2020. COVID forced us all to shelter at home for several months. And then right as we were starting to come out of our houses and navigate the new normal, George Floyd dies and everything erupts in the, the social justice um, realm of things. Um, and so we have been physically separated from each other um, because here in the South, we are a very hugging culture. Even those of you who don't like to get hugs, it, you're, you're like me, you've learned how to hug out of self-defense or how to return hugs, or, or at least uh, they, these people are on my safe list. I can, I can safely accept hugs from these people, but we can't even hug each other. Uh, the first couple times I was out in public and saw people that I knew, it, it, was, it was really weird because we'd go to say goodbye and then we'd be like, uh, you know, air hugs, but we were just so used to hugging each other farewell that there's like this physical stutter as we try to figure out what to do with our bodies because we can't hug right now. Um, so we've been fragmented that way. And then the social rest has put us on edge to where, you know, it, it puts us on edge with just random people that we just pass while we're doing errands or, or when we go to the store, whatever it is. We're very fragmented. And those are not the only ways that we have been fragmented as a society, but we will see other patterns as we go along. And then purposelessness, no anchor, no calling, no vision. Uh, one of the things that we always have to, you know, help our new families to understand when they come on board here, all the teachers here will make references now and then to college. We'll say, well, when you go to college, ultimately we at Lighthouse, we don't expect all of you to go to a four-year university. We know that is not the case. We will talk about college in the vein of like, if you go to college, this is what you can expect. This is how they want the papers typed up. This is how they want assignments turned in online. But what we talk about here mostly is about finding your calling, finding your place in the world within the larger design of God's plan for you. So if God's calling in your life um, takes you to a technical college or to an apprenticeship or into the military, that's fine too. We are not going to be mad. We're not going to shrivel into a corner and suck our thumbs if you come up and tell us that, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to college uh, I'm not going to university. I'm, I'm going to go to this two-year technical school over here and get an associate's degree. Like, that's fine. It's about finding out who you are in God's larger plan for your life, and then your career will just fall into place along the way. Okay, so the Enlightenment thinkers reject what they perceived as the contrivances and artificial realities 
of Christendom. So one of the things that you will see from several of these Enlightenment philosophers is that they see Christianity as being artificial, unnatural. This is not the natural way of doing things. And that right there, the idea of what constitutes being natural or normal depends on your worldview. If you buy into evolutionary thinking, then yeah, Christianity, does, Christianity doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You buy into biblical thinking and um, the natural order of things becomes a lot more apparent, not just from God's word, but from creation and uh, from, from several other aspects that I know in earlier classes we've talked about. Here's another example. I, I'm always inserting these and I know I, I probably should have warned y'all I try not to put in photos that are too graphic, but every once in a while I will put in something like this where the damage has not been done yet, but it, it's still like, I, I feel like it needs to be seen because this is the kind of extreme response that over the last 50 years we have grown more accustomed to seeing. Um, so in this photo, we have the Buddhist monk, Kwong Duk, uh, and he is burning himself to death. You, you can see the, the, the can of uh, gasoline over there to the side as part of a protest against the South Vietnamese government. So he is protesting the government and his part, and, and this is a Buddhist monk. So the Buddhist monks have this longstanding reputation of being peaceful, nonviolent, very thoughtful, philosophical souls, and yet we have a Buddhist monk burning himself alive in protest to the government. Now, that right there says a lot about worldview, about where he expects to go in the afterlife, about what dying this way may or may not achieve for him. Um, it also tells you a lot about his ultimate concern. Okay. And we will eventually get to, and, and veterans will know what I'm talking about, the, the five you know, elements that go into a worldview, you know, ultimate concern, and what makes art, what makes culture, education. We'll get to that in due time. But this one, besides being so stunning in a disturbing sort of way, this has a lot of worldview subtext worked into it. Yes, Cameron. So looking at this, you may not have even heard about it because that focus was on the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and that's knowing the, uh, the context, the historical context of something like this um, is, is huge. Because for somebody just coming to the photo and going, oh, whoa, that's like, wow. Um, you know, that, that's one level, but then if you have an understanding of what was going on in the Vietnam War at that time, then in some ways the picture hits even harder because then you start to understand what the man was trying to protest, what, what he was trying to accomplish out of this. Okay, so the real cost here, revolution is considered more appealing than reformation. Welcome to the summer of 2020. It is about the revolution because reformation is seemingly too slow, too clunky, too full of errors. 
With this comes a rejection of an overruling set of principles. So absolute truth, absolute right and wrong, using God's word as an absolute standard for how life is to be lived out is rejected out of hand. And then we get a passion for reinventing myths. Now, I could go on a whole sidebar about this. Um, I, I'm going to refrain from doing that um, right now, but uh, taking these old Greek and Roman myths, this is where we get the beginning of <laughs> the Marvel and the DC you know, universe with, with those characters. This is where we get Superman and X-Men and you know, Wonder Woman and the Hulk. Like we're taking old myths and we are reinventing them in new ways. And now they have become sort of this centerpiece of our culture. And especially in our current fragmented society, the superhero movies are really, they're about the only thing entertainment wise that everybody can sort of agree on. Because if you get away from the world of superheroes, people tend to gravitate either it's like, they want like the really sappy rom-coms or they want the really violent shoot 'em up movies or they want the really intellectual independent films that just, oh, that just, you know, reveals life and all of its realness. And, you know, people tend to gravitate to what their natural inclination is. They want to be entertained by being made more intellectual or with the romance, or with the violence, but the superheroes, like that's the one thing that, you know, really brings in any money at the movie theaters, assuming that they reopen. Um, but although, and, and this, is, this is going to completely change uh, our talks about media later, the fact that the movie uh, industry is releasing well, it should have, these releases that should have gone straight to the movie theaters, releasing them straight to streaming media. That's interesting. Um, and then anyway, just 2020 is reinventing a, a lot of the nuts and bolts of how life has just worked up to this point. But with reinventing these myths, we get a new faith, rationalism. We get a new vision, revolution, and a new priesthood, experts in science. So if you think about the way people have argued their candidate, their brand of social justice, their rebuttal of social justice, whatever it is, pick a person from whatever end of the worldview spectrum that you like, um, you see a lot of this, right? They, they try to, outside of the Council of Scripture, to rationalize or to reason why we need to defund the police. Um, and revolution, the way revolution goes down, especially in a world with social media, like in some ways revolution has not changed the, the map of the steps that it goes through, but the speed at which we go through some of those steps of a revolution have been radically altered due to social media. And then priesthood, it's all about the experts. It's all about what does Dr. Fossey say about COVID. Is that how you pronounce his name? Is it Fauci or Fauci? Fauci. See, I, I read the names. I don't know how they're pronounced. See, I'm one of these people, like I get the news, but I don't, I don't want people to tell me, I want to read it because I want to see what is printed, what is being said and not said. So yeah, Fauci, I, I didn't know how to pronounce his name. 
Shame on Miss Goff. But yeah, so it's the experts like him that people are turning to, and then you get people disagreeing or agreeing and taking sides. It gets messy. The result then is that if you go down this line of thinking, if you reject truth, um, you rely on human reason, you accept revolution and the experts in science, then you end up redefining everything. What constitutes a healthy relationship? That's been running, not even in the background, like that's been very much front and center over the last five to seven years, especially. It redefines traditions. You know, we're toppling statues now. You know, people want to take a Columbus Day off of the, the calendar. You know, that they want to reinvent how Christmas is celebrated or try to take um, something uh, like, like Kwanzaa and, and put it on equal footing with Christmas. And I'm not saying that Kwanzaa is a, a bad holiday. It's not. But there's this, this effort to take something that addresses the history of a specific people and putting it on an equal plane with something that is good news to all people, you know, it reinvents traditions. It reinvents what we hope for. That's the aspiration part. Um, okay, so this takes us to Rene Descartes. And if you're a veteran, yes, I, I'm already giving you a little sigh. It's like, we know it's coming. The philosopher chart is at the end of this. It's like, yes, but that's okay. The, the philosopher chart, that is another thing that will be carved in the back of your skull by the time you graduate from here. But it's also one of those things, like if you can wrap your mind around some of these ideas and, and some of the lessons that they teach and where these things um, helped reconstruct our society and our culture as we know it, once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. Um, one of the things I always love to see is whenever our seniors graduate and they get to college in about two weeks, four weeks, six weeks into that first semester of college, I start getting these text messages, Miss Goff, you were right. Miss Goff, you would never believe what my professor said in class today. Or I'll just get these photos, you know, snapped to me and they're like, you know, the, this, this is my roommate's t-shirt that he's going to wear tomorrow. And, and uh, here's the slogan. And, and I love it because nine times out of 10 it, wrapped up in those sorts of text messages, I'll get the additional comment of, I thought that philosopher's chart was so stupid. It, you drove me crazy with this, but now that I'm at college, I understand why you hammered it home. It is everywhere. I hear it in my math class. I hear it in the cafeteria, you know, the lunch hall at school. It, like it is everywhere. You cannot get away from this. And it's true. And Rene Descartes, he's the guy that gets the ball rolling here. Um, you can tell that his uh, lifespan uh, falls pretty much over the, the first half of the 1600s. He is typically remembered as the founder of modern philosophy and of modern mathematics. And he comes up with something called methodological skepticism. If anything can be doubted, then the thinker must doubt it. I cannot assume 
that any of this is real. I cannot assume that Caitlin or Zane is real. I cannot assume that I am real. I cannot assume that all of this stuff that I'm putting my hands on is real. I have to throw all of that out the door and I have to assume from the very beginning of any argument that none of it is real. And then I have to build my reasoning from there. This is what he did. Um, because his assumption is if I can be deceived, then I must in fact exist. Like that's where all of this thinking took him to be skeptical about everything. Well, what does that leave me? Well, if I can be deceived, if I can be lied to, then there must actually be a me to hear the lie. Now, this is considered by most people, at least in the secular world, to be groundbreaking philosophy. If it sounds like gobbledygook to you, congratulations. It really is. It's gobbledygook. But this is a gobbledygook that reinvented the world or, or, or started that chain of events. Because what ends up here then is that if I can be deceived, then there, there has to be a way for me to rationally, with my own thinking, without reference to anything else, I have to find a way to discover what truth is. So this is where we get pure rationalism. This is when people talk about Cartesian rationalism. This is what they're talking about. Only deductive truth may be allowed. So I can be deceived. Therefore, I exist. I exist. Therefore, all of you must actually be existing right now. You know, and, and you, you go out from there. And, and I don't reference history. I don't listen to what my parents have told me. I don't look at God's word. I only go by what I personally can discover. Whew. Okay. Are we good? If I got the slide. Okay. So his Latin saying, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And of course, there's, there's my little photo there. Do not read under penalty of law. There are a couple of websites out there that have uh, like a collection of these signs that are so ridiculous. It's like, why was that even put up? And that was one of them. Yes. I took Latin for like three years and I'm so glad that I can read that. <laughs> yes. Because I really honestly thought I, I hate Latin. I'm so bad at it. <laughs> and I'm so glad I can read that. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and that is where it's usually at this point, it's usually when you get to high school that you start to see where the Latin and the multiplication tables and the stages of the water cycle and memorizing the presidents in order where it all starts to come together. So yes, um, that is an advantage that, all of you, and I, I'm, I'm glad you have too. You know, most of you have had at least some Latin in your background. Um, and if you haven't, you will by proxy pick some up while you're in this class. Okay, I think, therefore, I am. Now, this is where in today's culture, I tried to uh, follow it up with, uh, with each of these. I'm trying to follow up with something from 2020. You start to see these sorts of slogans. It's sort of like the old poster from World War II, Keep Calm and Carry On. There's like 10,000 versions of those, including ones that we have posted here in the school. Keep calm and wash your hands. Keep calm and etc. Well, I think Therefore I Am has just as many permutations. 
This is one that floated across my social media radar um, during the middle of social unrest. I think, therefore, I'm dangerous. So you can see where all of these um, permutations of the original philosophy can quickly start laying groundwork for other damaging lines of thought. Okay, Baruch Spinoza. I like his name. He just, he sounds like he ought to be like a secondary character in The Princess Bride or something. Baruch Spinoza, um, his lifespan, 1632 to 1677. So he's like uh, right in the middle of the early colonial era in America. That's his lifetime. He was Jewish, um, which is why... You know, what follows here about him is so especially interesting that a Jewish man would become the father of modern biblical criticism, criticizing whether or not scripture, and this is the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, whether or not it is true can be relied upon. <clears throat> he rejected the idea that man was fallen. So Rene Descartes starts by doubting everything, but he doesn't appear to have doubted the fact that man is sinful. Um, in fact, during his lifetime, he and Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, had a long-standing uh, correspondence in, in letters in which, you know, uh, Descartes would um, make his arguments, philosophical arguments, Blaise Pascal would answer him biblically. Uh, and uh, it, it's a really interesting correspondence going on there. And I, I don't think Descartes ever doubted that man was fallen. He just wanted an, another way to prove what was actually true. Baruch Spinoza comes along and he just rejects that idea of original sin outright. He contended or, or uh, supported the idea that God and nature were two faces of the same reality. So God is in me, God is in you. Um, you know, we are all part of the divine. God and nature. He determined or decided that there was a force that actually exists. And since man can discern it, then he must be God or a part of God. If that sounds kind of familiar, then you're probably a Star Wars fan. That's the whole idea behind the force. The force is in me, the force is in you. Think Yoda telling Luke Skywalker, you know, feel the force between you, me, the tree, the rock. You, you know, it's only the, the, the barriers, the size, the difference, it's only in your mind because you are part of the divine. And he comes up with two. Uh, key ideas here. We have determinism. This is the idea that we are not choosing beings. Everything is already decided. This is not the same thing as predestination. Okay, Predestination has more to do with the sovereignty of God. And that is a theological concept. Determinism is secular. That we do not choose anything. Everything is already fated to happen. And then step beyond that is enlightenment determinism. We have no freedom. We can only become enlightened. And again, if this sounds like a bunch of applesauce, it is applesauce. 
maybe not as tasty though. Uh, it, it's, it's messy. But, but you can also see where Descartes starts with, um, I have to doubt everything. I can only trust what I think. And now we're to Baruch who says, well, if I can only trust what I think, then I think I'm part of God. I think I'm part of the divine. Okay, you see how this begins to sort of stair step toward modernity. So his motto, well, is Deus sive natura, God or nature, sometimes translated as God and nature. And the photograph there, you see the Karnimata or rat temple in Deshnoke, India. And this temple exists for the worship of rats because in the Hindu uh, worldview, all life is sacred. And with their added belief in reincarnation, that a person based on how they live life and you know, live out life in this life will determine what they are born as in the next life, then these rats, like the rest of creation, are potential ancestors. Um, and so th this is all part of that, that worshiping of the circle of life, things coming full circle. Um, and then I'm going to stop here. This is, this is my, you know, current culture uh, uh, piece here. Um, if you've ever taken a yoga class or if you've just, you know, around, you will sometimes see people put their hands to heart center and namaste, namaste. Most of the yoga classes I've taken over the years have, you know, they'll end with namaste. And it, it's, it's a nice little quick benediction. When I traveled in Asia, a lot of times this was the polite way to interrupt something. If you had like or work your way, like two people are having a conversation and around here, you just say, excuse me, and you just sort of walk through. Um, I learned in Indonesia, especially if I had to pass through an area where things were happening, I would, you know, you know, excuse me, and you know, namaste, and then I, I could go through and they'd go, oh, okay. It, it was just like the polite thing to do. Well, namaste, here is um, the, the, the core of, of what that actually means. And the, the bottom line of this uh, that you will sometimes hear people say is, the divine in me salutes the divine in you. Namaste. Okay, and this is something that by now has permeated American culture, um, and, um, and and most people I, I think don't fully understand the impact of of what that concept means. Now I'm not telling you that if you meet a, a person from India and they're Hindu and and they are um, showing good manners from the context of their culture that you know that you should be rude to them. Please don't. Like please. Please be kind, turn the other cheek, you know, all of that good counsel we see in scripture. But it is still critical to know that uh, that is what the, the word means within context. Final note. In a rare burst of goodwill, I decided not to give any written homework this weekend. And, uh, so that means that your only homework over the weekend is to 
keep up with your reading in Pride and Prejudice. Remember, you are supposed to have read through the end of Chapter 18 of Volume 1 by the time you come into class on Tuesday. There will be a pop quiz of sorts, not a long one, not too involved, just enough to let me know how well you are comprehending the book or whether you have gotten very far into it at all. So take that time, get to know the characters, get to know the story, and we will get back into the thick of things next Tuesday. Take care and God bless.